my notion of sustainability because i grew up in a context where you need to think about resources very carefully to begin with so my notion has always been like that actually it is not nothing that hey people are talking about sustainability so i have to reconsider that in a project so even if you go back to projects early on i've been thinking about that's why the question of materiality comes into picture what kind of material will be right material to use but also will age beautifully that it will last longer in a world increasingly facing the challenges of climate change with the building green podcast we will dive deep into the intersection of architecture design urbanism and environmental responsibility i'm ladina ship your host i've been an architect and building site manager for the past 10 years During my studies at ETH in Switzerland, as well as in my working environment, I've had many touch points with sustainability, like many of you, I guess. I've also learned to question what I've been told, which is why I decided to go deeper into the topic and uncover what sustainability actually means. My mission is to highlight the transformative power of sustainable architecture, not just as a practice, but as a catalyst for broader societal change. Subscribe for more of our content and enjoy the show. Today on Building Green, I'm thrilled to welcome Satyendra Pakale. He's an innovative designer whose remarkable work goes beyond traditional design disciplines. So Satyendra, you were born in India and you're now based in Amsterdam. Your journey from the prestigious Indian Institute of Technology in Bombay to founding Satyendra Pakale Associates has been one of innovation and cross-disciplinary exploration. Your expertise in blending technology with craftsmanship and design philosophy has led to collaborations with global brands and institutions, establishing your reputation for sustainable and forward-thinking solutions. As an advocate of design that harmonizes functionality with poetic significance, your contributions are recognized worldwide, with your pieces featured in museums such as the Victoria and Albert Museum and Centre Pompidou. In our conversation today, I look forward to delving into your vision for a design that not only enhances human experiences, but also advocates for our planet's sustainability. Satyendra, it's an honor that you, you're here to share your insights and inspirations with, with me and, and my audience. Um, so could you share the pivotal moments in your journey that led you to where you are today in the world of design? Well, uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Ladina. Thanks for the invitation, and it's a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, well, uh, you mean like all the journey so far, or what? what sure. uh, where shall I start? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, well, design as such or creation in a broad sense, because design in that sense, uh, I never see it in a, in, a, in a very categorized or compart- con- one compartment or the other but in a very broad spectrum of creation, you know, like in a built world, you know. Uh, It's just the curiosity led to this. I've been, uh, uh, I would say I've been fortunate to stumble upon the profession very early on uh, to discover. And you have to remember this is the era when I was growing up, there was no internet, you know. So, and internet, we have it on our desk in mid-90s, late-90s. So this is before that time. And... uh, so obviously to find information itself is a, is a challenge and the part of India I come from, uh, it's right in the center, you know. So then and even till today, actually, it is not as developed, I would say, as not accessible as the rest of the places are, you know. So uh, finding information was quite, quite uh, almost like a coincidence, you know, like a beautiful coincidence that I get to know i found one book once uh, it was uh, a book about design by george nelson the american architect i found it in a school library i read and i just felt this is what i want to pursue so that was really a very very uh, amazing uh, let's say discovery just out of my curiosity and i've been always creating making things you know I, and i have to tell you because we're going to talk a lot about the word sustainability which says everything and nothing at the same time today because it's been somehow overused word you know sometimes even misused if i can say you know so uh, these things actually for me they sound sometimes too bit uh, banal but i'll get to that later but before that uh, i'm looking forward coming- 
yes, before that, actually, the thing is, uh, it was just the curiosity. I've been making things, drawing things, uh, those things. And my parents uh, saw that as aptitude in me and was uh, sent to kind of right schools. That time, there were technical schools where you teach, you know, already at the high school, doing all what you do in, in European context, what you call gymnasium, you know, where you do all the mathematics and languages and all that. But besides that, you also do uh, how to make things, you know, with all basic materials and technical drawings and uh, on those things. So it was a really beautiful combination, some, somewhat unique, actually, not in every school, but in that special school that leads you to pursue whatever, either architecture, design, engineering, all kind of professions, you know. So that's how I gone and one lead to another. I landed up finally into the Industrial Design Center that, that was quite international uh, actually at that time and that's before the internet time. And there was a wonderful occasion on which uh, I got admitted to the school at the same year was the celebration of the this this design school which was based on the historic Ulm school you know the historic Ulm school which is founded by the great swiss architect and designer from your city max bill probably you know mm -hmm. and he was one of the founding dean of the school actually Ulm, the hfk Ulm, you know in Ulm, which was just founded just after the war you know and one of my professors studied there and he was then came back to India and started design school in this Indian Institute of Technology. That's where I studied, actually, you know. And later, and at that that year was very interesting and important because uh, that year was the 20th celebration of this institution. And a lot of people from Europe, from Japan, from America, Australia came to visit. So that was my really design introduction in a very international context, you know. And that's how. And then I won the international first prize of the the art center college which was in switzerland so i have a long link with switzerland and and it was the american school that existed in uh, the french part of switzerland close to vive and i was the first prize winner that led me to study product design there and after that and uh, that was a wonderful experience, actually. And it was, again, the school where everybody who came to teach was a practicing designer. So they were in the profession, you know. So it was very interesting to to engage with lots of uh, uh, legends in industry and as such, you know, like people who came there. Uh, and then after that, I, I worked a little bit with uh, uh, Frog Design, with Hartmut Esslinger, the man who really define the Apple design, what we know today, you know, with a lot of few people know the inside story. And because Frog Design... Can, can you founded, tell us the inside story? Yeah, the, the thing is, Frog Design was uh, uh, the, the, the design company that time in uh, late 80s, early 90s, where uh, young Steve Jobs uh, uh, um, selected them to be the, the main design company to design the early product. So the Macintosh, the classic this year in 2024 becomes uh, 40 years old was designed by them you know like the, the egg no 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 the egg came much later ah. this is really <laughs> 84 the first product apple ah, the had. small one the yeah. small one the, the 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 very cute one the little small one which had yeah 34 K, kb uh, on their a floppy disk, you know, that time. Yeah, <laughs> and so so that one was designed, and so the design language of that, if you really understand, is the monitor and everything is all in one hardware, and all you have outside is a keyboard and a and a mouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So today's the uh, all the Macs actually have exactly desktop has exactly same thing. Everything is in one. You you only keyboard and mouse is outside, and that's it. You know. So that conception of the Apple at that time was very, very strong, actually, you know. So it defines the DNA of Apple already there, you know. So I had a great privilege to spend time. And, and that time, Hartmut uh, Esslinger was like the master, grandmaster. He has done all those things. And and he was very friendly towards me. I was a young guy and I, I could ask him why the keyboard is like that. And I could argue with him on a lot of things. And also... Then they designed the second computer with them is called Next Computer, you know, and that was mm -hmm. another computer that was computer on which the Internet was made, actually, you know, at 
uh, CERN, you know. So the next computer was again a beautiful piece of work, actually. That was the first black computer ever made, you know, in a black color that there was never been. So that was very, these are the things I get to see inside, how they were made, how they were conceived and so forth. And so that was a wonderful so experience. Yeah. And then I was uh, uh, invited to join a unique team at the Philips Design by Stefano Mazzano, who was an Italian architect, who was heading Philips Design at that time in mid-90s, you know. And he was uh, uh, like the first person from design to be part of the board of directors. So he was part of top of top. Uh, management so there was a big influence you know and a big mm -hmm. leadership visionary leadership in terms of uh doing design and implementing it on a on a on a very broad scale you know and there i get to do very innovative projects like the panjia car collaboration with renault uh there are many other things their vision of the vision on move they were objects what we are now talking through like a mobile devices they were conceived already then, though the technology was not there. You know, the solid state memory was not there. The uh, the video cameras, what we have now, we are speaking with, didn't exist, and all these things were there that time. You know, so that was the that was the wonderful possibility. But I did that. All these were intense years. You know, I did that three and a half years exactly, and then I was so curious to explore different things from technology to very age-old crafts. And that's how I moved to Amsterdam, set up my uh, practice and started. That was 98, that exactly 25 years ago, yeah. That's super cool. And what was yeah. the first product you started with? I actually, I almost took a U-turn because you see, I and I will talk to you about that as well, because, you know, the I did a lot of technology, automotive technology, a lot of state of art, and I could have gone on that line, but... I always felt there is a need to explore the age-old techniques, you know, like the lost wax casting process. There are many other materials that one need to explore. So I, I set out to explore this uh, very unique technique, which is um, which I was exploring, and I discovered one uh, community in the center part of India where they do the casting in a very unique way, actually, as a very unique refined object making actually you know and that i explored for a long time and that is where i started with and then one lead to another i engage with materials like ceramic then i engage different materials i really took on each material and explore it in terms of the language in terms of possibilities in terms of its its own uh, you know in terms of long-lasting impact of those materiality on the making itself you know so that mm -hmm. was those were the early projects and that led to projects with the industry and that led to other curiosities and then afterwards i landed up doing architecture so this is like a progressive one after another thing actually like organic growth so let's say you started with the technology went back to craftsmanship and then put it all together Exactly. You can say that more or less. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. looking back over your inspiring career, how have the evolving demands of sustainability, or I'm interested in knowing what you meant before by saying that the word of sustainability is somehow a bit loose or misused. Um, yeah. So how have the evolving demands of sustainability shaped your approach to design and innovation yeah. over the years? No, that's that's an interesting thing, and that's where I have to bring you back to the other point I was talking about, and that is that is, you see, I did not grow up in a consumption culture, so my growing up didn't happen in a in a consumer society as such. Yeah, uh, my way and understanding of life has happened where every resource you have, you have to use carefully because there's no other resources otherwise. And there's no market that even, I mean, just to give you a simple uh, recall of a childhood is like, it's not that your your parents or your mom is taking you to the store and buying a toy because uh, you, you go and find a piece of wood, you have an idea, you go to a, a maker, a carpenter, you make a toy, you make a top, you make those kind of things. So in that sense of conceiving an idea and getting it made and using it, is been part of my childhood you see so 
that on one hand is that the other thing is i seen and later when i got the chance to travel around the world be it africa be it in finland or be it in uh let's say other parts of europe if you really look back when before the second world war you know that's not a long time in a arc of a history of humanity almost every place people had unique way of doing things and in switzerland you have many other many ways of doing things or using local material in the context of that uh, whatever you find in a vicinity and uh, the beautiful example comes to my mind is from false you know like the uh, the one from uh, zumthor you know peter zumthor you know so these mm-hmm. kind of examples where the materiality is used from the context there's a this is seen everywhere on the planet earth you know nothing mm-hmm. everybody uses the context understand the geography and and does that what happens and we need to understand this in a context of the arc of a history that what happens after the second world war where the in the 50s and the 60s the consumer society is almost invented if i can say yeah mm-hmm. so the pushing of consumption and throw away culture is kind of cultivated and reinforced in a society as almost like a like a notion of a progress or notion of a modernity which seen from today's perspective is absurd you know so you can mm-hmm. even uh, research a little bit and find out that uh, scientific america america kind of magazine has a cover page where a, a housewife a lady just taking this throwaway plastic uh, plates and say hey i don't need to do dishes anymore and she's throwing away nobody thought where is going to go and this these errors are done by everywhere i was talking to an uh, industrialist uh, in dietikon which is not so far from zurich once and he said hey everywhere was the same even in in the pharmaceutical companies used to throw their uh, let's say chemically treated water into the rhine you know this was happening all the way up to 80s actually you know so this this the throwaway culture gone so beyond like nobody thought about it there is a notion of a, a twisted notion i call it of a progress or twisted notion of modernity in my view that's not the real modernity and that created this kind of a behavior that and that's everywhere there's no place you can say it's not done and there are a lot of places is continue to happen you know so when talking about sustainability actually at least we are talking about it now which is a good thing it's not a bad thing but my notion of sustainability because i grew up in a context where you need to think about resources very carefully to begin with so my notion has always been like that actually it is not nothing that hey people are talking about sustainability so i have to reconsider that in a project so even if you go back to projects early on i've been thinking about that's why the question of materiality comes into picture what kind of material will be right material to use but also will age beautifully that it will last longer you know so all these concerns were in the early exercises actually you know whether you how do you use the materials how do you make it what kind of processes you use and so forth so the question of sustainability does not come because there is a conversation about uh, what you call the uh, climate change you know it's not it's the other way around because the the concern has always been there so i've been talking about this very early on they that may sound very different now or maybe pretentious to some people who don't know me that that hey this is the, but if you look back it has been going on for a long time to an extent that i remember in early early 2000 i was talking about this and i was giving a talk at the future design days in in stockholm and i spoke about these issues very very strongly you know and and then later the same year actually i recall the design academy in eindhoven you know the very well known design school the director liedel coach she she was asking me to think about uh conceiving a program for master of design and heading the master program actually which at that po- that point of time i was not so much inclined to go to to teach or be affiliated with the academics that time i was very much focused on a practice you know but then after reflecting and she convincing me and few other people i i took that responsibility and i ran the master of design for humanity and sustainable living you know this was a program i ran from 2006 till 2010 you know 
And now the same same type of program which evolved further is called social design. You know, so so the context of this I've been talking a lot earlier, and and that also reflects in my in 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 the projects as well. You know, which I will talk in a bit. But so it's not a new notion to me. You know, and if you really dig down and find out, I'm talking about in every culture you could go you will find very sustained way of living. You know, all the practices, you know, all the ways of living are very much rooted in their practice and that we call either cultural expression, the food they eat, cultivate. It was all over. No place is exception, you know. And, and these are beautiful ways of doing things. Unfortunately, we trash those things, you see. Now, I am not the guy or not the person who's romantic about the past. That's not what I'm saying here. Let's not confuse the issue here, yeah? <laughs> I'm, all I'm saying is there's certain right way of doing things which we should have cultivated and even pushed further, which we did not. Instead, we invented so-called consumerism. And now, after doing 70 or 80 years of that, we suddenly realize, hey, that's not the right way. So we're talking about sustainability. In fact, everything should be sustainable, including human mm -hmm. relationships, you know? If it's not, we collapse. That's simple as that, you know. Mm -hmm. I can't go more basic than that. So, and every human civilization, every human culture, in a very profound way, is a sustainable. If you really look at their practices, everywhere, and you cannot just say otherwise. People would not survive. People would not survive in Finland, you know. They really found a way after a thousand years of let's say trying out doing things. They found a way how to sustain, you know, and then there are festivals for uh, according to the seasons. And then there are, let's say, special food, which is prepared for that season and so on and so forth that you find across the world, you know. So it always been there. So it's not something new in a way. So now what we did is that we trashed it. You know, yeah. now I... I I repeat myself that I'm not saying that we have to glorify the past. That's not what I'm about, you know. I say we have to learn from the past but go forward. That's all I would say, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A few of you might know that I recently opened my own architecture studio and I just started with a podcast. I'm very excited to build a platform where I connect with inspiring people to learn along the way and share these learnings with you. So if any little thing has inspired you or if you learned anything new, I'd appreciate if you could rate the show or share my content on social media, Spotify or YouTube or wherever you listen to it. And if you think there are any touch points between you and me, I'd be super happy to connect with you. Feel free to reach out on any platform. So, so you're saying that, that your cultural or your diverse background is what influenced actually your sustainable design ethos because you didn't grow up with the consumerism that maybe me um, a few generations or a generation later in another yeah. in Europe grew up with. Yes. Yeah. And I, I don't want to say that as a, as a, as a unique thing. It's, it was a unique thing. It mm -hmm. was the only possibility. You understand, you know, mm -hmm. it was not mm -hmm. that I'm saying I, I, I could relate to that. And also thanks to the people around around me when I grew up, parents and relatives, that that awareness was there that, hey, you have to be you, you can't just throw whatever things away. You know, you have to be resourceful, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. that awareness was there. And I think I would say that is not unique to any specific place. That awareness one could see across the world where the consumption culture didn't happen, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you you then became a, a teacher, and what did you differently? Were you the first one that ran the program of design and sustainability? Yeah, that was the founding founding department of Master of uh, Design for Humanity and Sustainable Living. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you do different with the students than what it's, was? It's not really different. It's it's really we did a many different kind of projects, and 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 the question of sustainability one could talk or or on many levels you know the obvious first thing and though it is obvious and there's but still a lot of work to be done and in all fields including architecture to objects to design to everything is the materiality like how we use material and resources that's the i would say just so primary we are not gone past that yet unfortunately 
mean, that's so primary. I mean, that has to be that we shouldn't exploit and all those things. I mean, it has been said thousand times. And if you really want to know, uh, uh, there was, uh, I think, uh, a person with the Finnish or Hungarian background. I don't know exactly. Uh, Victor Papanik. He wrote a beautiful book designed for the real world uh, many years ago in late 50s, early 60s. You know, so he talks a lot about it. Buckminster Fuller talks about it as well. You know, using right kind of technologies and right kind of material and so on and so forth. That's the obvious step one could do, you know. But it it's that's really and most of the, the, the cultures I spoke about around the world, how people use their resources with that kind of a respect and so forth, you know. You see it in Japan, you see all over the world actually. There's no place I can't think has doesn't have that genuine consideration for nature, you know. Uh, but it was not just that. If you really talk about sustainability, we need to take a, a, a panoramic view on entire things, what our man-made culture is all about, you know. So we dealt in into healthcare, so we de dealt into the cultural context. We did a lot of different kind of projects, you know, to projects about identity because all these issues eventually rooted in a, in a context of human dignity. Yeah, and and what I mean by human dignity, because in a consumer industrial exploitative condition, uh, one or the other other place is exploited, either resources, whether they come from here or somewhere else. And why they are exploited? Because there's not same consideration for humanity. Like if we consider human rights in Europe this way, you don't apply the same rules if you are doing in a colonized place, you know. So what comes down here in that context is the question of human dignity. And we worked on that. We worked on human uh, uh, identity of a people. We have worked on uh, project across different kind of geographies. You know, Finland to Turkey to Africa. You know, in in Brazil as well. So there were really many different takes on that. It was not one take on a on a sustainability in that sense. Mm -hmm. And one That's project it. I can conclude was done called a cold chain. You know, cold chain that was how we could. Uh, deploy and distribute, uh, let's say, the life-saving vaccinations across the world in a different terrains, actually, you know. That was one of the other projects we carried out, actually. And then I further developed that during the pandemic in 2020. And that's on our website as well, actually, you know, the modular vaccine carrier, yeah. Can you can you explain that to the audience, to the ones that don't well, know the project? Well, uh, yeah, this is a, a very interesting uh, 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 a situation that we have, let's say, outside Europe, uh, Canada, and in some part of US, there's hardly a, a, a systemic healthcare system exists that really reaches across the urban as well as rural context. And if you take the extreme difficult terrains, like in some part of Southeast Asia, South America, where literally people cannot be reached uh, so easily. So the the World Health Organization has a program called Cold Chain, where there's a literally uh, a container with the vaccination, which all the children have to get while growing up. Or when there's a pandemic like we just gone through, that people need to get the vaccination. In that case, how do you take the vaccinations which are sitting in Geneva because the United World Health Organization is there or their distribution center is in Copenhagen, how that goes to all these remote places, you know. And it's it's really the, the, the situation is quite sad at this point of time, how they are distributed. They have this very basic container which uh, is then shipped with the with the flight to the local whatever the storage there from there it's taken either on the jeeps or then it goes on a camel or on a donkey or on a bicycle or on the head of the people it's really crazy how it goes all the way to the to the village and often it often it does not reach there so this was an attempt to create a really a modular system by which it's it's a container that has all all the all the vaccinations that can retain at certain temperature but at the same time you can properly stack them that great number of uh, let's say vaccination can be stored in a compact way without damaging in a small space then it has a form that you can carry as a backpack you can carry on a shoulder and even worst case which i don't really um, want to profess and propagate but it happens in our world that some people 
carry it on the head, which is not very healthy for a, for a human being to carry things on the head. But again, because we are in that situation, it, it also has a possibility that it can be carried on the head as well. And then it can go around the world and it has a tracking so you can really see it is going to the place where it is deployed to go. It is supposed to plan to go, you know. So all those features are in there, actually, you know. It's super interesting. Yeah. Very nice. And um, back to the pandemic, since you mentioned it before, yeah. I, I read in your essay, Future is Now, you yeah. draw the fascinating parallels between historical pandemics and their yeah. influence on modern architecture, like highlighting the shift towards integrating work and life spaces in urban design. Yeah. So considering this perspective, how do you envision sustainable architecture and design evolving to address global current global challenges yeah i think i think there are a lot of really fascinating possibilities when uh, one gets to look into looking at the current pandemic and how we could learn from it and try to try to really do something about our built environment you know so it can go from urban planning all the way to object, actually, and, and one can get benefits from it, you know, in a way. Uh, in some places, you see early signs, people are already doing that. And, and the obvious thing is running between the, 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 the suburb to going to the work and spending hours in a, which is conditioned in many metropolitan cities, unfortunately, is not the right way, you know. That's where the classic idea of a, of a home and work and all of that. So it's not also to glorify in that sense, but somewhat, let's say, middle way would be the another conception called 15, 15 minute city, what they call, you know, I even would call it five minute city, to be honest, you know, because that's the condition. And luckily, we have it here in Amsterdam. You also have it in Zurich as well, as well that yeah. you can almost have all your stuff done in that, that, that um, five minutes of commute and you can get almost everything done for your daily life and don't kill your time for that, you know. So that's the obvious thing, I would say, which is, which is, the rest of the world has to catch up and and do something about it. Obviously, that is there on on a on a question of uh, let's say understanding of um, on an architectural built environment. Let's say there is still I mean the notion using of a daylight using the natural ventilation. I think these are very profound ideas which are not new ideas by any means, and every culture has dealt with them in a better ways. But again, I can go back to our consumption society, then suddenly the glass towers are created and then you have to cool cool it in the summer and heat it up in the winter. You know, this nonsensical progress, you know, has been adopted in almost every big city around the world and you got the glass towers, you know. Now you go to India and, and the temperature is fantastic outside and you go inside, it's like 2025, you go inside, you're freezing, you know, in a normal day. And in the summer, it's 40 some or 50 degrees. And inside, you have a, uh, you have to cool down the whole tower. And if you go outside, you can get a sunstroke. You know? So this is like absurd modernity, actually. You know? so, and this has been going on. So at that level, I think the using of, let's say, natural ventilation, as well as, uh, I would say, using a daylight. And there's a lot of possibilities of using a daylight, actually, you know, uh, is, 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 I think creates a beautiful architecture because that is the kind of poetics we need to really bring in, which is always because, you know, the resources are used so carelessly that you can just clay, create an enclosed surface and then you heat up when you want, you can put the light where you want and then it's like just useless nonsense, you know. So the moment you use a daylight, the moment you use a natural ventilation, it makes you think in a different way. And when you when when it makes you think in a different way, it creates also beautiful spaces, beautiful uh, language, actually. And that is what I'm fascinated by. It creates a language which is not the obvious stereotypical language where the things are, again, looks banal almost everywhere in the world, actually. They almost, if I would throw some slides of different places, including Zurich, and uh, show them like which country it is from, nobody will know where it is from because they look the same. Almost, you know, so so all these things are missed opportunities uh, uh, and these are still yet to be done. So what we are missing is that poetics in architecture, 
you know that is that is where there's a beautiful light one could bring in the light changes as the day changes the light changes as the season changes you know you can have a beautiful vegetation you know which is different in different places actually which could be part of our architecture as well to enhance not only the 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 environmental condition to get better oxygen or quality of air and all that but also make it a very beautiful gesture in terms of almost poetics because in autumn it will have different colors in a spring it will have different colors and in summer will be different you know so i mean all these things we are missing I mean that's ridiculous, and we call ourselves so-called advance and progress and whatnot. You know, I mean that is just gone. You know, and there's so much to do on that. So this sustainability issue is not just cut and dry about either saving resources or that. We are missing on our quality and beauty and poetics of life. Not having that, you know, yeah. I really like that idea of. Um, going a step back or a step forward um, into connecting more with the nature that surrounds us. So living or building with what's around us rather than with the newest technology, which means glass towers everywhere. Exactly. And and let's not forget, I mean, if you really dig down ancient so societies and look, look, look at the very, very even archaeological uh, findings in, a, in, a, in, in, uh, in the urban conditions, which were there 2000, 5000 years ago, you find already multi-storied buildings. So it is not a question about towers. There could be towers, but the towers could be made in a different ways, you know. And mm -hmm. towers don't necessarily have to be always vertical. They could be horizontal as well. You know, <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah. Are, are you talking about yeah. the line? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not talking only about the line, but that's a good one. But there are many other examples, you know? Yeah. 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 So, so the point you talked about is like from the pandemic, going from there, I spoke about the urban environment to architecture. I go to the object level now. Yeah. And that's where the pandemic, because you made a link to the future is now, uh, uh, the essay I was um, uh, mentioning all these issues there, you know. Now, I want to ask you a question. Like, you think about the radiator. Where does the radiator go in the house? Underneath the window. Yes. Or <laughs> what where, What else? Um, on the floor or on the ceiling. Yeah. On the ceiling. Yeah, the floor, floor is the, the new thing. That is the floor heating, relatively speaking. Yes. But under the and window, the you said that's quite... And the ceiling is even newer. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a bit, bit problematic because the hot air goes up. That's a basic physics. So putting it exactly. in the ceiling is, is going to heat up the next floor, not to you. So that's a bit of problematic. But next to window is a good question, a good answer you gave. And, that's a, and it has its roots in a previous pandemic, almost a century ago, you know. And what they found out uh, that to get to have, let's say, warm air and a fresh air. So they put it just under the window. So when you open the window, the cold air is coming, but it's somehow the warm air is getting pushed in as well and the air gets heated up sort of, you know. So that was that was that was the, the consideration why we got the 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 the, the uh, radius on the wall itself, you know. But now this year, exactly 20 years ago, we launched a product which was called Add-on Radiator, which, which is all this consideration, what we call sustainability, all of that has been in it, actually, you know. Now, today, unlike 100 years ago, we have an architecture, we have double glazed walls, windows in, the, in every, almost every uh, building. That's really a norm. You cannot build just with single glass, you know. Even sometimes they are three, uh, three times glazed, triple glazed, you know, but double glazed is a norm, you know. So we don't have a condition like 100 years where the air, just the cold air is coming in, you know. We have quite concealed and sealed windows these days because the technology is much better, right? So heating up the infrastructure is not the context. So I wanted to create a radiator where you really need a warmth next to you. So why can't the radiator be part of your living environment? That's how the add-on radiator was born, actually. That it can be integrated with the architecture. The, uh, the water comes from the ceiling, hot water, which is the most efficient, ecological, and less 
uh, energy intense means cost effective way to heat with the hot water you know and this hydraulic thing and goes into the ceiling so seems like a simple idea it took a lot of effort to to make it it was four years of work to engineer it produce it and and it became an industrial product and that's also uh, a product not only a static element that it nice to look at which almost everybody likes it but the main consideration i had in that project is to not to waste energy that's how we started because the more air surface it has more it will heat the surrounding space if you mount it on the wall it heats up the wall first up to 40 to 60 percent heat goes in the wall first before you start heating the space where you are because you're not sitting next to the radiator or something you're sitting in the space you know so all these considerations were back of my mind to conceive that idea that and then they still call it the only innovative radiator in the market because it has it it is a radiator where air passes through it you know and and you can integrate in architecture now 20 years it's in a market but it's still difficult for most of the architects and planners to really see that hey this can be added and this could be used in an interior like architectural element you know and it is used and in switzerland it is used in one very beautiful site and it's used in some other places but there are still very few people who got it really the sense of it because the notion of something stuck on the wall is so strong that even this radiator gives you a possibility that you can you can put on the wall if you want to but you can really remove it from the wall and put it between the ceiling and the and the and the floor you know and this is a very exciting possibility and this has all its roots actually in that thinking as well as the understanding of the previous pandemic as well as our our pandemic what happened you know so i give you these three yeah. three three possibilities on urban on architecture as well as on object level and on product level you know yeah yeah so did i understand it right it's like the idea behind this it is to use it as well as a room separator where you if you have like a huge living room that you want to separate into two areas you can use it there and it works kind of like it, an old musharabi i don't know how you call how you spell it um but like a nice element where also like the light get fil gets filtered through and a little bit the noise and it's like an accent in the room exactly and at the same time it's really a radiator it works as a radiator you know mm -hmm. it is not mm -hmm. because the hot water goes through it and it is and because it's in the space it heats up your space and mm -hmm. so that was my main beginning and all the other features you said that it could become a room divider it can break the light it can break the sound all of that were additional thing that happened with it but my mm -hmm. main consideration was how to conceive energy and how to create a object which can be integral part of architecture that's where it started nice. you know yeah very nice so i wanted to ask you if you could highlight a specific project or design of yours that has significantly contributed to making our living spaces more sustainable would that be it? i don't know i mean the, i would i would think about this as the only possibility i could comes to my mind right away you know yeah that yeah. because you know heating is a such a significant let's say uh, energy intense act we have in a living especially in the in the winters we have uh, you know in, on the planet where it's it's necessary to heat up the in interior spaces you know in that mm -hmm. sense the early consideration on this project has always been that very unique idea that how can we conserve the energy how can we not heat up the infrastructure that's the wall but how our space heated up you know Mm -hmm. and feel Very feel comfortable yeah yeah so um digital technology is reshaping design yeah. how how have digital digital advancements like 3d printing transformed the sustainable yeah. aspects of your work especially in material selection and production techniques yeah yeah i mean look every technology gives a possibility you know and uh, of course 3d we've been using since the beginning and 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 the possibilities of let's say there are many possibilities one could not think otherwise because it's become easier faster more effective to calculate uh, and understand how much surfaces what kind of things we have but really you know uh, sometimes we also as a culture have a tendency to glorify certain things and and 3d printing you know 
in some sense is a good thing because you can have certain result get certain thing but it's still in a very early stage of its development you know let's not forget you know so what we see 3d printing now is still very very early phase the metal printing is just com coming just right now it's still in a in a very basic form you can't do bigger pieces and so forth and 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 the sand printing is coming so the natural material like a sand can be printed and so forth and all that but the classic 3d printing is a great technology but it's also limiting as a beginning to begin with you know so we have to still wait till it gets refined gets further and we use it of course to experiment it and understand it but i think we need to understand these things and and make them much more refined that they become more articulate you know so i would not glorify them for the sake of just being new that's not that doesn't come doesn't suit my mindset at all i think we we have a lot more possibility to explore there like you see in architecture some very basic 3d printing people have already built the whole house with the 3d printed whatever cement or other other kind of things but i think they are still very primal in my sense of understanding you know primal means basic yeah they still need to be advanced you know in many ways yeah and do you think the the fact that many people or more people have through 3D printing access to create stuff or build houses, does that um, create more consumerism maybe? Not necessarily. Look, I mean, everything has its possibility. I think, first of all, I don't want to sound like it's not democratic to think like that, but I want to say something very profoundly primary. Uh, just because more people do does not mean if take example of a camera yeah now in today's context before you need to have a professional camera now in everybody's pocket got a camera right like the, the the iphone or any smartphone you take you have a good quality camera fairly good quality video you know that does not make everybody great filmmaker or a photographer does that right yeah do you see where i'm yeah. going with this yeah so yeah. if the technology is in hand now pencil everybody can have a pencil right that does not make them a great person to conceive idea or a draw or or a write of great poetry you see what i mean yeah? Mm -hmm. yeah i am completely for accessibility to everybody but let's make make no mistake that just because it's accessible to everybody, that means it's going to be developed faster or, or greater poetics are going to come out of it. I think that is not the right expectation. You know, definitely everything should be accessible to everybody. But would that lead to a possibility where we want to know? I think people who, like us, who are engaged with the creating, engaged with making, are critical, not fascinated for the sake of fascination or just for the newness, but really apply to them and try to use in a different way, push the borders. Those are the people who are going to make it something different, you know? And mm -hmm. who are those people? They could be anybody. So it should have accessibility, of course, and with that accessibility, some kids sitting somewhere can can think about some other ways of doing it and so forth you know so that's how the progress would happen and should happen so so i don't i don't know i mean we can't say just because accessing everybody will change it or not giving access will not change i mean we need people who to engage it more let's say with greater curiosity i would say you know yeah yeah i understand what you mean and i mean accessibility also comes with choice so everybody has to choice, uh, choose one thing they are going to pursue, whether it is writing with a pencil or 3D printing. Yeah. And I think I would not glorify either of those, either of those. So I don't want to glorify pencil and I don't want to glorify by 3D printing as well. They're equally important and equally nonsensical or sensical. What you make out of it is more interesting. It's not the tool, you know? Yeah. yeah. So that, that actually points towards my next question, like sustainability often involves blending old and new. And I want to ask you, how do you balance traditional craftsmanship with modern sustainable practices, especially in the diverse material choices and again in the production techniques? Yeah. No, Ladina, here I have to mention one thing. Tradition for the sake of tradition doesn't mean anything to me at all, you know? Because every tradition, if you really ask that question, was an innovation at one point of time. It didn't exist all the time, you know. You need to ask that question. Yes. So what? So 
so from that perspective something one has to follow just because the tradition that doesn't suit me i i'm the first one to break that rule but at the same time new for the sake of new also doesn't mean anything because it's just the fascination and you see that with the technology like it's one after another after another but what is really most important with this whole let's say uh, even a dialogue between so called modernity and tradition i think more important thing is making meaning what makes meaning what makes poetics what makes beautiful what makes possibility that enhances our sensorial quality i think that is more important and how to do that how do you combine that how do you synthesize that that leads to the possibilities what we could do so i really don't want to get into this what is what is this and what is that the the the, the, the let's say the the, the the confusion and the dynamics between oh this is this this is that i i said loud and clear tradition for tradition doesn't mean nothing i think what we need to do is to able to see the world beyond these limits because these are also binaries somehow created by people you know they 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 are created by like sometimes there is a conversation that the traditional craftsmanship is opposite of technology but if you ask me the best craft example i will give you boeing if you go to the boeing factory everything is assembled with hand what is that craft right that's my way of looking at the craft you know then you take a weaving basket done in some place in i don't know namibia it is nothing but a fractal geometry that's a mathematics you cannot say that just because it's done by hand in fact one should give more more uh, let's say possibilities and respect to the object which is conceived completely by a person and has that accurate mathematics in it you know so this very archaic and old fashion ideas of what is tradition and what is modernity i think we need to question them first and then once you question them these these binaries which are made which are kind of confusing and unnecessarily like i gave you two examples now everybody nobody's mind will come like hey boeing is a handmade object it is a handmade object <laughs> Yeah. and putting yeah. the window in by hand so yeah that was so fascinating to me <laughs> it is it is totally <laughs> handmade thing and it's a it's a one off as well you know yeah yeah there's no other thing exists it just made once you know so all yeah. the mistakes of learnings are in there all the possibilities are in there you know yeah 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 that's really true what you said you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> A huge thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to the podcast to support me and so you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, I'd also be so grateful if you could rate and review us. If you have any guest suggestions or any feedback, you can find me on the socials at Latina Ship. Thanks.